David Wells, the theologian, not the baseball player, he writes about one of the most um, pernicious and long-lasting heresies that the church has faced. Gnosticism was around in the early days of the New Testament, and it is still plaguing us today. And Wells writes this, he says, an outside God, that is a God that is outside ourselves, such as we find in biblical faith, is comprehensible because he is self-defined in his revelation. The inside God is not. A God that exists um, apart from our own imaginations is understandable because he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. Whereas a God that is completely inside our minds, such as a God that we may hear about, for example, on Oprah, is incomprehensible because that God is imaginary. Well, Wells goes on, and at the beginning of this, he uses some uncommon words, so just kind of bear with me for a moment. I'm getting to a specific point. David Wells writes this. He says, The inside God is merged into the psychological texture of the seeker and found spread within the vagaries of the self. The outside God stands over and against those who would know him. The inside one emerges within their consciousness and is a part of them. Religions have their schools of thought and their interpreters, and always the debate is over who most truly understands the religion. Spirituality, in the contemporary sense, spawns no such debate, because it makes no truth claims, seeks no universal significance. It lives out its life within the confines of private experience, truth is private, not public. It's for the individual, not for the universe. I'm sure that you've encountered this. People who claim to be spiritual but not religious. People who use terms such as your truth or my truth, even when those two truths contradict each other. Again, Wells writes this. He says, Here is American individualism, coupled with some new assumptions about God that are being glossed off with infatuations about pop therapy, uniting to produce varieties of spirituality as numerous as those who think of themselves as spiritual. In other words, there are now as many religions as there are people, essentially. The spiritual journey in this contemporary sense does not begin with what has been given by God as we would say, or, or, what the, or what does not change. Rather, it begins with the self. It begins in the soil of human autonomy and gives to the self the authority to decide what to believe, from what sources to draw knowledge and inspiration, and how to test the viability of what is believed. The result is that this kind of spirituality is inevitably experimental and even, get this, libertarian. Its validation comes through psychological or therapeutic benefits that are derived. 
mixing and matching, discarding or reappropriating ideas in an endless process of searching and experimenting. And this is what spirituality is about. This spirituality is known as Gnosticism. And that Gnosticism is the American religion. This Gnosticism is this spirituality which is rooted in the self. And it assumes the liberty, in other words, I have the authority within myself to either oppose or to appropriate, to take as my own, external religious forms. And it is resolute in its opposition to having to submit to some sort of external religious authority. It is in these ways that we're also seeing, Wells says, a convergence between what he calls ancient primal spirituality and a resurgent paganism. Now just think of those last two words and and think about our nation and the people around us. Are we seeing, are we experiencing a resurgent paganism? It's going to be hard to answer no to that question. Well, Gnosticism is hard to define, but it is essentially this. It is a separation of the spiritual and the physical. So Gnostics believe that spiritual is good, but physical is bad. The physical world, the universe, even our own flesh is bad to Gnostics. Therefore, the Gnostics will say, Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh. And they, will also, they also believe that salvation is the attaining of a, of a special secret knowledge that only they know. Now there's much more to it and it can be very complicated, as I can tell by the looks on your faces. But this is really infiltrating American thinking and it's even affecting the church. Many in the church believe that they have discovered a, a secret knowledge that only a select few have attained. Whether this has to do with a secret knowledge about current events or even revealed scripture, this Gnostic spirituality is making inroads into the, into the American church. So, with that as a background, which should serve as a clue as to where Paul is headed here, and I know it's probably not as clear as it should be, but I want to read today's passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 16, but I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1, 1 through 16. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray and ask God to help us to understand this today. Father, we do pray that you would give us um, ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might understand through your Holy Spirit what you are saying in this chapter, in these verses, that we might, uh, we might walk as Christ walked, that we might live as you have called us to live, that we might trust in you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so far in our study of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has repeatedly insisted that human wisdom is insufficient to bring about understanding of the things of God. And when we talk about human wisdom, we can deduce um, that he means human wisdom in whatever form, right? whether that is literature, whether it is scientific study or political science or mathematics or specific to the recipients of this letter, Greek philosophy. And as chapter 2 opens here, Paul further insists that he's not come to them proclaiming human wisdom. So, So does this mean that the Apostle Paul, and by extension really the Scripture itself, the Bible itself, is anti intellectual Does it mean that the Bible is opposed to scholarship and learning? Absolutely not. Paul, in fact, called Timothy. For example, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Study hard, he says. And it's clear from all that he has written so far in this letter that Paul means, what he means by the wisdom of this world is the knowledge of God and of divine things that men have purposed to know and to understand by means of their own reason. They're trying to understand eternity. They're trying to understand deity, the things that God has said through their own way of thinking. In other words, the Greek philosophers are building, um, we could put it this way, they're building mental and intellectual towers of Babel. They're trying to reach heaven. They're trying to reach eternal life. They're trying to find significance or enlightenment or whatever it is that they want to call it by means of their own ability, using their own brains. But just like the Tower of Babel, this wisdom is worthless as a means of salvation. Human wisdom is a useless substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Charles Hodge, who was, um, 
He led Princeton Theological Seminary back in the mid-1800s before it abandoned the gospel. He said this of Paul here. He said he was not banishing philosophy from the schools, but from the pulpit. Let the dead bury their own dead, but do not let them pretend to impart life. And so as a way of salvation, worldly wisdom is out, according to the Scriptures. But the Scriptures do not call us to jettison all wisdom. Turn back to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. I just want you to read these first few verses of Proverbs 1. Beginning right in the first verse, I'll just read down through verse 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now jump down to verse 20. Proverbs 1.20 says this. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates she speaks. This is what wisdom says. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. We could continue reading all throughout Proverbs, really several other passages or even books of the Bible um, that we sometimes call wisdom literature to understand that God is not opposed to wisdom. But the Bible speaks of true wisdom, true wisdom, or maybe a better way to to say it is wisdom in the flesh. You can picture God himself saying those words in Proverbs 1.23. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So let's consider true wisdom. Turn back to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. or chapter 2, rather, true wisdom. Look at verse 6. So 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So consider, just as he begins this verse, who are the mature? Or I think that King James or maybe some of the other older versions might say something like, them that are perfect. Who are the mature? Who are them that are perfect? Well, the word that is actually used there is a word that it literally means finished. To them that are finished. That might have some negative connotations for us today in some ways, depending on how we use that. Those who are finished. But in this case, it means to those who are full grown in the knowledge of the truth. And I think the best way to understand this the best way to understand that word to the mature or to the, the, them that are perfect, the best way is not, not to think of a full-grown adult, but rather a baby 
who has matured in her mother's womb, who has come full term and so has been born, or in this case, born again. Okay? Paul here is specifically referring not just to mature Christians, but to those who have been made like Christ, to all those who are in Christ. Look back at verse 30 of chapter 1. He had said this, And because of him, verse 30, and because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We could say in verse 6 here, among those who are in Christ, we do impart wisdom, Paul says. But there's a specific reason that Paul uses the word, the mature, here. Instead of just saying to those who are in Christ, which he does in lots of other places, he uses this word for a specific reason. And we're going to see more of this as the the language of this letter begins to change a little bit here in in these verses. So let me read verses 6 and 7 again, and we'll try to get into what this means. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Among the mature we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, Paul says. What Paul is doing here is adopting, or really kind of, we could say, commandeering the language of what are often called the mystery religions that have plagued humanity since sin entered into the equation. And he does this both to to undermine their message and to illustrate his own point. So these mystery religions, and they're all similar, um, they have at their core this belief that there is a secret and hidden knowledge that only they know. This is Gnosticism. You have to read the right books in order to attain this secret knowledge. You have to to read the right websites. You have to listen to the right podcasts. You have to subscribe to the right magazines. You have to practice a certain meditation or use the right herbal remedies in order to reach this level of secret knowledge and enlightenment. And once you do, then you are among the mature. You've been initiated into those uh, deeper secret teachings of this cult. And you've reached that spiritual perfection, that spiritual enlightenment. And at first, it seems like Paul is saying this as if if Christianity was just another Gnostic religion. But then he switches or, or kind of flips the narrative, so to speak, when he includes this little phrase, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. In other words... Christ's work of salvation, his plan of redemption accomplished on the cross was planned in advance of creation, before the foundation of the world, as he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. But he also says that it has been decreed. This secret and hidden wisdom has been spoken. It has been revealed throughout Scripture. This is sometimes called, we could call it this, and I love this phrase, the scarlet thread of redemption that is woven throughout the Old and New Testaments leading to Christ. 
This is what Jesus was talking about when he was after he resurrected from the dead and he was walking on the road to Emmaus speaking to some disciples and they didn't know who he was. And Luke tells us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we have to understand, Jesus picked some scriptures and taught them. We, we have no idea which ones, it doesn't matter. It all points to Christ. Consider, for example, an obscure passage from the law. This is Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. I'm going to go ahead and guess that you probably don't have this memorized. Leviticus 17, 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And Jesus in his death on the cross, is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And this secret and hidden wisdom of God is all over the scriptures. And so in that sense, it's not so secret. It's not so hidden. We just need to have our eyes opened and our ears unstopped. And Paul is clearly saying, we impart this wisdom. We're preaching this wisdom. We're teaching this wisdom. We're writing about, he, he's writing about this wisdom here in the scriptures. He's saying, we preach Christ crucified. What is secret and hidden to those with foolish, darkened hearts is now revealed. It is preached, it is proclaimed, it is heralded even if it's not understood by the world. Not understood by the world. Look at verse 8. He says, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now in this verse, Paul is implicating everyone, really. Um, Jew and Gentile. That's everyone. He's implicating the Romans who physically nailed him to the cross and crucified him. And he's implicating the Jews who demanded that he be killed, crucify him, they demanded. The Jewish leadership who knew the scriptures, yet they didn't understand them. Remember the indictment of John chapter 12 says this, though he had done so many signs before them. Remember, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom and Jews demand signs, he says in chapter 1. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. They refused to believe the message. There's another indictment in Scripture, and I think it's even harsher. It's Romans chapter 1. Just listen to verses 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sounds to me like the secret and hidden things have been revealed so that we too are without excuse. I don't often see the sunrise, but did you see the sunrise this morning? Did you see the sunset last night? That should cause us to say, how great is our God. He gives us those things as a grace to say, I created this. In fact, we should say that the wisdom of God has been revealed actually by the Holy Spirit himself for those whose eyes have been opened. This next section is about being revealed by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. I'm going to pick it up and read 9 to 13. But as it is written, what no one has seen or ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Beginning in verse 9, he gives us a quote Probably he's drawing there from Isaiah chapter 64, but the point that he is moving toward in this is this. None of us would have come up with this plan of redemption. To save wretched, degenerate, depraved sinners by sending your only begotten son to die in their place, and not just die, but die, on a, to die cursed, hanging on a tree, on the cross, all of the collective wisdom of this world would not have come up with this plan. And yet this is something God has decreed for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit always works in conjunction with the Word of God. We believe, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And so the testimony of the apostles about Christ was given by the Holy Spirit. We believe this. In fact, Peter said this outright in 2 Peter 1.21 when he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So not only, as verse 10 says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, meaning the, the writing of His Word, okay, but it is also the Spirit who enables His people to understand from the Word what the rulers of this age have refused to believe. But let's back up because I want to summarize um, this here because this can be hard to follow. Paul is saying 
that it was God's predetermined plan and purpose to reveal His wisdom. And His wisdom is the mystery of salvation through the cross of Christ. To reveal that wisdom to those who love Him, and He is doing this now through the work of the Holy Spirit. And remember, it is the Holy Spirit who is active in revealing salvation through the preaching of Christ crucified. Look up at verse 4 again. I want to remind you of this. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And in using, when he goes on here in chapter 2, really beginning in verse 6, to use this um, sort of spiritual language, mysterious language, in almost appropriating the language of the Gnostics, although remember, he's flipping it on his head and saying it has been revealed. In talking this way now, while including the work of the Holy Spirit, it's clear that Paul is making a big deal about the spiritual nature of salvation. See, not only would we never have come up with this plan of salvation on our own, we also would never simply believe this message of salvation on our own. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And that's us. That's everybody. That's what that means. A stumbling block uh, to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That means everybody. By emphasizing the Holy Spirit's role in the revealing of this wisdom, the wisdom of of the cross of Christ, we can see that there is something more going on in our salvation than mere mental agreement. Right? Yes, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's more than that. We are a spiritual people, but probably different from the way the world uses the word spiritual. See, it's the Holy Spirit who bridges the distance between human beings and the depths of God. And to illustrate this, Paul writes verse 11. Look at verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Well, the answer to that, it's a rhetorical question, but they would understand, yeah, only I know my own thoughts, right? Then he goes on and he says this, So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Paul here in verse 11 is, is affirming the deity of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who knows God's mind, God's plan, God's purposes other than God himself? That's what he's saying here. So put the argument like this. The wisdom we proclaim is the secret and hidden wisdom of salvation in Christ alone that is only secret and hidden to those who refuse to believe because it's actually been revealed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God and through the, the preaching of the Word of God. But Paul continues on here by saying this, Oh, and you, you like spirituality? You like to think about Gnosticism, etc.? Listen to verses 12 and 13 again. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, there are two important uh, truths that we need to remember as we read these verses. The first is this. Every Christian receives the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at salvation. 
As proof of that, I would offer up to you Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, or especially clear is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee, as a seal of our redemption until we acquire possession of it. In other words, we have the Holy Spirit from the moment of our salvation until we see God face to face, until we are with Him in eternity. Well, second, the Spirit has several works that He does for us. Um, John chapter seven verses, uh, John chapter sixteen verses seven through fifteen gives us kind of a partial summary of some of those works. But and I would encourage you to read that sometime. But for our purposes here, I want to read just two verses, verses thirteen and fourteen. So listen to this. This is John sixteen verses thirteen and fourteen. Jesus says this. When the Spirit of truth comes, this is the Holy Spirit, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the things of God, the wisdom of God. He helps us to understand the significance of Christ crucified. And so as verse 13 says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And again, this imparting, as Paul puts it, is all of Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth. His preaching and and his teaching while he was with them as well as his writing here of God-breathed Scripture. But we also know that this God-breathed Scripture is still a teaching of the Holy Spirit for us. The Holy Spirit still speaks to us and gives us understanding through 1 Corinthians. Somebody said, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear Him speak audibly, read it out loud. You can think about that one later. It's a good quote. And this category here in verse 13 would also include what we would, really what we should call spirit-filled preaching. Preaching that is informed and used by the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and our minds. As Paul was taught by the Holy Spirit, so were the Corinthian Christians. As Paul was taught by the Holy Spirit and taught the Corinthian Christians Uh, by the Holy Spirit, we now in reading this God-breathed letter are also taught by the Holy Spirit. Because the primary work of the Holy Spirit for Christians here is pointing to Christ. In fact, we should note that Paul actually always, nearly always at least, uses the word spiritual to be that which or one who, something that or a person who points to Christ. So when you see in Paul's writings the word spiritual, almost always it's talking about that that which or a person who points to Christ. And so when he says spiritual here in these verses, he doesn't mean that sort of like vague, Gnostic, cultic, Yellow Springs-ish type of spirituality. I'm glad you knew that one. I knew you would. He really means of the Spirit. So spiritual truths point to Christ. Those who are spiritual 
look to Christ, the source and fulfillment of true wisdom. And true wisdom is this kind of spiritual wisdom. It is a wisdom that is of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual wisdom. Verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritually discerned. Holy Spirit discerned. So with all of this in mind, it it makes sense. Consider this here. It makes sense why the world thinks that Christians are either strange at best or even foolish, ignorant, for believing the things that we believe, right? But this verse is saying, really in in general terms, what Paul has already said more specifically in chapter 1, verse 18. Just look over there. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. The word of the cross is foolishness, the world says. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But to us who are being saved, because the Holy Spirit helps us to understand this, the foolishness of the cross is the power of God for salvation. The natural person, the one whose foolish minds are darkened, do not understand the things of God, especially the mystery of the word of the cross, or as we saw last week, even that word propitiation. That Christ died for sinners, taking away our sin. This is why we must pray. This is why we must pray over the preaching of God's word, that the Spirit would be working in the hearts of those who hear the message, our own hearts and the people around us. This is why we must pray over the salvation of our friends and family. Sometimes we think if I could just get them to agree with me that Jesus rose from the dead, then then they would be saved. It's not about agreeing with me. It's not about a mental assent, knowing, okay, yeah, I can see that that's true. Even the demons believe, James tells us. The Holy Spirit must give them life. This is why we must pray for our enemies. This is why we must pray for leaders and all those in authority over us that the Holy Spirit would be working. Because until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and unstops their ears, until the Holy Spirit gives them understanding, they cannot be saved. Verse 14 tells us that the natural person is worldly. But look at the spiritual. Look at verses 15 and 16. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. Now sometimes when we see that word judges like this, we think of judgmentalism, right? Being judged. Um, But this really, it really means makes right judgments. So the spiritual person, the one who is of the Spirit, has the ability because of the Spirit, because of the Holy Spirit, to see Christ and His purposes in every circumstance. We have that ability. This doesn't mean, for example, that we always do it, though. It doesn't mean that we always look at current happenings in the news through the lens of Scripture. We should, but we often don't. That's when we 
that's when we start to fear, right? Or whatever emotion might arise when you watch the news. Yet we are able to, in the Spirit, to see Christ, to see His purposes in current events. We can see Christ and His purposes unfolding in our own families, in our own life decisions, or whatever the case may be. Usually we can see it most clearly in hindsight. I think we would probably all agree on that. We can see how God got us to this point. I don't know how He's going to get us to where we want to be next but I know how he got us here. We can see that he's working and trust in him, even if we don't know all of the details. But Again, while we have the Holy Spirit, we need to remember this isn't magic. Um, we need to read. We need to study God's word. We need to meditate on it. We need to pray and seek godly counsel, knowing that we are to be judged by no one, or as Romans 8.33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We may be considered foolish in the eyes of the world, but we have the mind of Christ, he says. Because remember, the secret and hidden things have been revealed to us. In fact, it's all right here in God's Word. Remember, these first two chapters of 1 Corinthians are all about the message of the cross of Christ that has been given to us. This is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is all about the message of life and joy and redemption and reconciliation. All too often the Christian life is made out to be one long list of laws to be followed. That's just a depressing view of this life. But this is not the picture that Paul is painting for us here. As Christians, we have been given so much already. We have Christ. We, we understand God's plan of salvation in Him, and, and we live that salvation day after day, even if we too often forget. In Him, we have, we have the joy of the covenant communion of the saints. We are able to judge between what is of the Lord and what is not of the Lord. We, we have discernment. This means that we can look and see just how much has been freely given to us so graciously by our good God. Just, just look, at, look at verse 12. This is the joy of our salvation that extends beyond the grave, or maybe we should say before the grave. It extends not just into eternity, but even now, Christianity has infinitely more to offer than the Gnosticism that our world seems to keep returning to like a dog returns to its vomit. You have the mind of Christ, and you can know his salvation. And so this morning, we come to the table with thanksgiving in our hearts because of the work that Christ has done for us. Because he has given us the mind of Christ. Just pray with me. Father, I am grateful that, um, that Peter tells us that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. And yet it is your holy scripture. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to have the mind of Christ. To know your purposes, your plan. 
to be so influenced and impacted by your word and led by the Holy Spirit that it would only cause us to grow in our trust of you. You are steadfast. You have revealed to us the secret and hidden things of your plan of redemption. That you have sent your Son, the only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, Father, we cling to that scarlet thread of redemption, knowing that it points to Christ, it leads us to Christ, and we are thankful to know him. And so we come to the table this morning, Lord, with hearts of thankfulness, knowing that Jesus Christ um, obediently went to the cross, bore the sin and shame, our, my sin and shame, that we might be called children of God, that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And so, Father, we eat the bread and drink the cup to proclaim his death until he comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.